Thank you very much, Daisy. And thank you to uh, Gabriel and Colin and to everyone involved with 5 by 5 by 15 and, um, and the Writer's Mosaic. Um, Angela, I just have to say, I really loved your piece. Um, it so much um, resonated with me. Um, and my piece kind of follows on a little bit from that, but from, um, I guess, a quite specific perspective, uh, you know, just in terms of thinking about permanence and the way um, statues are treated. Um, I've been similar to you in arguments with people about, you know, statues such as the Colston, such as the Cecil Rhodes, um, and people uh, defending them will say, um, you know, that that's our history. You know, you can't sort of turn your back on history. That's what happened. Um, but what I'm experiencing as I get older is that some people's histories aren't as permanent, but that doesn't mean they're less important. Um, and I wrote a short story kind of um, back in August 2020 um, as a sort of initial response to um, losing my grandmother's house, which was a council house after she passed away. Um, I sort of didn't think anything of this story until recently when I went to the Tate Britain to see the Life Between Islands exhibition and saw um, the Afro-Caribbean front room that had been installed there by uh, Michael McMillan. And I think we have a picture of it here. Um, so it's a 1970s Afro-Caribbean living room. And I walked in not expecting to see it at all and was almost sort of floored by it because of the amount of things that I recognized from my grandmother's house, um, from my own childhood, from the homes of other Afro-Caribbean immigrants. Um, you know, the carpets, the ornaments, the drinks cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. And it led me to remember that I had actually photographed all of the rooms in my grandmother's house um, just before she died, um, including the front room, uh, which will be our next slide. Um, so this uh, this was my grandmother's front room as she left it. This was two two days before she passed away in October 2019. And this is actually the screensaver on my laptop. Um, so I'm always sort of reminded um, of, of that house, which I was basically born into. Um, and so I kind of came back to this short story that I wrote. And it's, I don't know whether to call it a short story or not, but it's a sort of personal response to, to that space and to losing it. My grandmother's neighbours, both sides, are quiet South Asian families who watched an ambulance take her away at night and have begun to suspect she's not coming home. As I approach her gate, jangling my keys, one of the elders, washing his car in the October sunshine, nods at me. How is she? He asks. Good, I reply. Cheers. I dip my head to discourage further questioning. She's always hated anyone knowing her business. Her garden looks absolutely terrible. Never seen it anything like this. Strong weeds up to mid-thigh, hardier than any shrub. I'll clear all this for her, I tell myself, even if she'll never know. I unlatch the little wooden gate. Everyone in my family knows that sound, a high click, 
And for anyone sitting in the front room, it means the excitement of visiting aunt your uncle or even just the insurance man. It's a contentious sound because the gate has to be shut and it has to be shut firmly yet quietly. In recent years, it's expanded and now needs lifting into the latch, which I do even though she won't be there to shout at me for not doing so. I check myself for only respecting her wishes now she's on her deathbed. The familiar creak of the front door opening. Nobody smoked in this house for 20 years, but I'm still greeted with traces of the smell deep in the carpets. Home. For a moment, I forget as I open the front room door. Silence. Back in the day, I'd sit and read the paper with a cup of tea, ignoring the horse racing or whatever was on TV, until my grandmother came in with a miraculous tray of cooked food, leftover stewed beef and hard food, perhaps. You want some hot pepper? She'd ask, and she'd go to fetch it for me, barefoot, feet hip-width apart. I close the front room door without going in and hang up my bag and coat in the hallway. Her kitchen. What a mess. Cupboard doors open, piles of unopened mail among remnants of stale bread and Jamaican bun on the table, unwashed plates in the sink, a black sack overflowing with KFC packaging and empty two-litre Pepsi bottles next to the bin, a multi-pack of Walker's crisps with only the ready salted left. As soon as her back is turned, perhaps it's a protest. Pans on the stove. I lift the frying pan lid expecting to find a generous serving of leftover ackee and saltfish. Dry. Even the kettle's gone to the hospice. It doesn't occur to me to dig out the old stove kettle from the back of a cupboard. She never threw anything away. I haven't told her I love her. Well, I have, but in that slightly mocking, love you, Nan, kind of way people use when they'll see them again in a day or two. I return to the front room, a sun trap, and sit down. Opposite the run of simple terraced houses is a wild bank choked with weeds and wiry knotted trees. The sun shimmers through them onto the back wall, illuminating columns of dust motes. As soon as the hospice carers informed us they were no longer going to give her food or drink, an uncle unplugged the front room telly and Sky Plus receiver and put them in his car. They are in his name, in fairness. Dark halos of dust and grime mark the absences of framed family portraits that have been removed to the hospice, as if my grandmother might wake up and be fooled that she's actually at home, surrounded by daughters, granddaughters and nieces, all shouting over each other, nobody waiting for whoever is speaking to finish, the conversation frothing and crashing like waves. In its heyday, 20 or more people might be packed in this little room, drinking bottles of beer, cans of Mackeson, or glasses of Sanatogen wine, telling each other stories, throwing back their heads against the woolly orange antimacassars and slapping their thighs with laughter, waiting for someone female to bring them their tray of food. I look around at the inanimate objects that saw all those days, a glass Christian fish, 
a wooden flamenco dancer in a silky yellow frock with black fringing, a rosy-cheeked china shepherdess with her dog and lambs, a never-used porcelain teapot depicting an English equestrian scene, a wall clock that only told the right time twice a day, and uncle's trophies from when he was a promising striker before he ruptured cruciate knee ligaments, a plaque that said, Christ is the head of this house, though no one in it ever went to church, a little ship in a bottle, a drinks cabinet full of best glasses that came out every Christmas, worthless, mass-produced objects every Jamaican household has, but that I can't throw into the boot of a car because I've never learned to drive. An uncle has already put his name down for the mahogany chest at the bottom of my grandmother's bed, full of her decades-old, well-kept frocks that'll probably end up in black sacks being driven to the nearest charity shop or clothing bank. Some white goods are going to another uncle to furnish a flat he's lived in for over a decade. An auntie, who was her father's favorite, will be taking his old armchair. The other auntie, the middle child, hasn't decided yet what she'll take. She's been the one organizing everything and she's tired. The rest will be cleared by men with great big hands and dirty nails who have never touched these precious things before and won't know what they mean. My grandfather's motto had been, when you buy a house, then keep you for life. If you rent, you pay every month and you never owe them more than that. They lived for today as if they might one day just up and return to Jamaica, but they stayed until it was time to die. The council will repossess the house 28 days after her death. We've grown up here. This is our heritage, our memories. 37 years we've filled this house up with things we couldn't throw away. Now we've got no choice. I find myself back in the kitchen as if unable to believe there's no food in my grandmother's house. I feel like I should make a start clearing up, but it would take days alone. So many layers. The plastic carrier bags she keeps because they destroy the planet if you throw them away. Glassware, dinner services, cutlery, her little Fulton umbrella by the back door, the ashtrays from when my grandfather used to smoke, piled up in their own little space under the crockery cupboard. Mugs reserved for relatives who are now dead and gone. She hates waste. If she dished up anyone dinner, they would have to scrape the plate. But none of her children can cook like her. Her house coats hang on the kitchen door next to a plaque on the wall above the deep fat fryer, the shape of Jamaica, with the locations of Kingston, Montego Bay, and Ocho Rios marked, and the national emblem, the Akiberry, painted on in red, yellow, green, and black. Slavery took our ancestors to Jamaica against their will, and their descendants' needs brought them to England, where they found jobs in factories, moved into one council house after another, and filled this last one with cheap shit until they died. I've never been to Jamaica, my parents haven't either. And so it feels as if my link to that country is dying with my grandmother. So I'm free to leave it all behind. I don't have to stay here and clean up. I don't have to stay in this country even because my needs are different from theirs. 
I can live anywhere in the world and set down roots of my own, migrate, even if for the same reason my grandparents did, to build a better life for myself. But there needs to be permanence. So there's nothing I can do but photograph every room in the house as she left it, her bedroom, the bed sheets exactly as they were when she was taken away, the tape measure over the door to ward off evil spirits. I zoom in on the carpets, which have been there since they moved in. I capture her headscarves neatly folded in a drawer, all the pairs of glasses she kept. And in a back bedroom, I find her wedding album. She in a high-necked, long-sleeved white dress, concealing her bump. My grandfather looking handsome in his black suit and white gloves. One of them going, the other long gone. Everything they've worked and lived for is about to be cleared to landfill, apart from a few photographs, bits of furniture and jewelry their children will argue over. I slip my phone back in my pocket, run downstairs and out the front door, locking up and posting keys through the letterbox. She won't remember or care about the garden. The neighbor has gone back indoors. I firmly but quietly lift the latch into the gate behind me. And I just want to add one last thing because um, yesterday I was with a friend um, who runs a junk shop um, and I found this. <laughs> which I'm so happy to now have. Uh, my grandmother had one of these on her windowsill. And it's one of those things that people in the family would have thought was worthless and that would have been taken away. Um, so I'm glad to have found one almost exactly the same, uh, which I will cherish forever.